Hello, this is Dr. Peng Xianqian, the Editor-in-Chief of Hyrythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast, summarizing the January 2020 issue of the journal. The Hyrythm Journal is entering its 17th year. In addition to being the official journal of the Hyrythm Society and the Cardiac Electrophysiology Society, as of this month, the journal is also the official journal of the Pediatric and the Congenital Electrophysiology Society. The journal maintained its lead in 2018 as the most cited arrhythmia-focused journal with 14,412 total citations. The current impact factor is 5.225. I want to thank our authors, readers, editors, reviewers, and staff members for their contributions to the journal. The first article this month is the effect of remote ischemic preconditioning on electrophysiological parameters in non-valvular paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, the RIPPAF randomized clinical trial by Kosio Gatlaw. The authors randomized 146 patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation to undergo either remote ischemic preconditioning or RIPC by short episodes of forearm ischemia or sham intervention. The results show that RIPC reduces the inducibility and the sustainability of atrial fibrillation. RIPC has been used before in multiple other cardiovascular conditions, but the mechanisms remain unclear. Whether or not it can be used to reduce atrial fibrillation burden outside the EP lab remains to be studied. The next article is by O. et al. titled Effect of the Variability of Blood Pressure, Glucose, Total Cholesterol, and the Body Mass Index on Risk of Atrial Fibrillation in a Healthy Population. The authors studied 7 million people from the Korean National Health Insurance Corporation and measured the variability of glucose level, blood pressure, total cholesterol, and the BMI during each clinical visit over a five-year follow-up period. The results show that a higher variability of these metabolic parameters is closely associated with the risk of new-onset atrial fibrillation in those without cardiovascular comorbidities. These findings suggest that preclinical metabolic imbalance may play an important role in subsequent development of atrial fibrillation. Bancherol wrote the following article titled Stroke and Dementia Risk in Patients with and Without Atrial Fibrillation and Carotid Artery Disease. They studied 11,000 patients and found that both atrial fibrillation and carotid artery disease increased the risk of stroke, TIA, and dementia. The coexistence of atrial fibrillation and carotid disease further augmented the risk of both endpoints. Ablation of atrial fibrillation improved outcomes of stroke and TIA, particularly in those with carotid artery disease. This study documents that the coexistence of both diseases is additive in risk and suggests that ablation of atrial fibrillation may reduce the risk of stroke and TIA in those patients. Next up is an article by Hutt et al. titled Left Atrial Appendage Closure Device Implantation in Patients at a Very High Risk of, uh, for Stroke. 
The purpose of this study was to assess the role of Watchman device in patients whose chest to vest score greater than or equal to 5. They included 104 patients with successful Watchman device implantation. A majority of the patients had high bleeding risk. All but two were treated with anticoagulation for 45 days following Watchman implantation. All patients also received the lifelong aspirin, and some received the dual antiplatelet therapy for six months. After one year of follow-up, only three patients, or 2.8%, suffered a stroke. The estimated annual risk of stroke in patients with the characteristics of this cohort is approximately 12% of anticoagulation and greater than 4% on warfarin. These findings show that the left atrial appendage closure device may reduce the risk of stroke in this high-risk population. The next article is titled Thromboembolic Bleeding and the Mortality Risks Among Patients with Non-Valvular Atrial Fibrillation Treated with Dual Antiplatelet Therapy versus Oral Anticoagulants, a population-based study by Wallace et al. The authors studied 52,000 new patients with atrial fibrillation in Hong Kong and identified 8,520 users of oral anticoagulants and dual antiplatelet therapy. The likelihood of receiving dual antiplatelet therapy over oral anticoagulants increased with older age and previous intracranial hemorrhage. They found that dual antiplatelet therapy users were at markedly increased risk for thromboembolism and death compared to anticoagulation users. These findings indicate an opportunity to use oral anticoagulants even in groups at high risk of bleeding in order to prevent stroke and death. Larido et al. contributed the next article titled Caster Ablation of Electrical Storm in Patients with Arrhythmogenic Right Ventricular Cardiomyopathy. This multi-center study retrospectively enrolled 23 consecutive patients with ARVC who underwent 24 RF ablation procedures for electrical storm. At one year follow-up, the probability of freedom from VT recurrence was 75% and recurrent VT did not significantly include, uh, influence long-term survival. After a median follow-up of 3.9 years, electrical storm recurred in two patients. These findings show that RF caster ablation was efficient to prevent electrical storm recurrence in patients with ARVC. However, these patients remain at high risk of evolution toward ARVC-related heart failure, cardiac transplantation, and death. The next article is titled Caster Ablation in Children and uh, Patients with Congenital Heart Disease, Review of uh, 1,021 Procedures at a High-Volume Single Center in Japan by Kato et al. About one-third underwent ablation due to WBW pattern including 55 with asymptomatic WPW. Overall success and the recurrence rates were 93.5% and 17.3% respectively. Small patients and congenital heart disease patients had a lower success rate. No deaths occurred. Serious complications occurred in five patients. 
while catheter ablation is safe and effective for treatment of arrhythmia in pediatric patients, small patients and congenital heart disease patients had a lower success rate. Coming up next is a paper by Moore et al. titled Caster Ablation of Supraventricular Tachycardia After Tricuspid Valve Surgery in Patients with Congenital Heart Disease, a multicenter comparative study. Tricuspid valve surgery is often required for adult congenital heart disease, but may hinder caster ablation when artificial material or imbricated tissue covers the tricuspid annulus. He also studied 136 such patients who underwent 180 procedures targeting 239 tachycardias. They found that after surgery for adult congenital heart disease, caster ablation success was lower and the tachycardia recurrence was higher after tricuspid valve ring repair or replacement surgery. These ablation procedures also used longer than usual total procedural and fluoroscopy time. These findings suggest that new approaches are needed to improve the outcomes of ablation in patients who have had tricuspid valve surgery. The next article is written by Noel et al. and is titled Oversensing Issues Leading to Device Extraction When Subcutaneous Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Reached a Dead End. Subcutaneous Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator or SICD, implantations are rapidly expanding. This single-center study found that SICD had to be expanded in 6 of 108 implanted patients because of uh, refractory oversensing issues that included mild potential oversensing, P or T wave oversensing, rate-dependent left bundle branch block aberrancy during exercise with R-wave double counting, and R-wave amplitude decrease after ventricular tachycardia ablation leading to noise detection. Despite adequate preoperative screening, signal oversensing without an available corrective programming option remains a major concern of SICDs. The next article is written uh, by Afzal et al. titled Instance of False Positive Transmissions During Remote Rhythm Monitoring with Implantable Loop Recorders. During a four-week study period, all consecutive remote transmissions in patients with implantable loop recorders implanted for atrial fibrillation surveillance, cryptogenic stroke, and syncope were reviewed. A total of 695 remote transmissions were adjudicated. The authors found that the false positive rate during remote monitoring was substantial, ranging from 46 to 86 percent, depending on the indication for implantation. Adjudication of these transmissions is required to avoid misdiagnosis and potential errors in clinical management. Hakemi et al. wrote the following paper titled Quadrupolar versus Bipolar Leads in Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, an analysis of the National Cardiovascular Data Registry. The authors evaluated the data, 176,000 procedures, and analyzed the outcomes using 
Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services claims data between 2010 and 2015, during which quadrupolar lead was introduced to clinical practice. There was a reduction in CRT lead placement failure rates and a reduction in diaphragmatic stimulation rates. However, these improved procedure outcomes did not translate into any statistically significant difference in long-term clinical outcomes. Whether there is any mortality benefit of quadrupolar versus bipolar leads in older patients undergoing CRT implantation remains unclear. Next up is the evaluation of a new ultra-low-dose radiation protocol for electrophysiology device implantation, a near-zero fluoroscopy approach for device implantation by Eichenlaub et al. The authors developed a new ultra-low-dose radiation protocol that includes reduced pulse width, increased thickness of minimum copper filters, reduced detector entrance dose, reduced pulse rate, and optimizing image post-processing settings for de novo device implantation. A total of 1,173 patients were studied with 500 patients in the ultra-low dose group. The authors found that by establishing a new ultra-low dose radiation protocol, they could significantly decrease radiation exposure during device implantation. The reduced radiation might have benefits to the staff and to the patients undergoing the procedure. The following article is written by Jung et al. titled Additional Anti-Tachycardia Pacing Programming Strategies Further Reduce Unnecessary Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Shocks. In patients from shockless study, the number of overall shocks were compared between patients programmed to no more than three ATP sequences in the VT zone and no more than one ATP sequence in a fast VT zone versus patients programmed to receive additional ATP sequences in VT and fast VT zones. Over a mean follow-up of 20 months, patients with additional ATP programming had a 39% reduction in the number of shocked VT episodes and a 44% reduction in number of shocked fast VT episodes. These results show that the programming more than the nominal number of ATP sequences is associated with a lower recurrence of ICD shocks in clinical practice. However, because the authors did not collect data on syncope, whether or not there is increased episodes of syncope is unclear. Knight et al. authored the following article titled Genetic Testing and the Cascade Screening in Pediatric Long QT Syndrome and Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy. The authors retrospectively studied the use of genetic testing and followed the yield of cascade screening at six U.S. centers. The families of 315 index patients demonstrated a 75% acceptance of cascade screening. Positive proband genetic testing led to greater participation. Cascade screening detected a positive result in 39% of relatives with a yield of about one person per family. Barriers to cascade screening participation include primarily the family choice, with much less of a barrier imposed 
by insurance coverage. These findings suggest that cascade screening is effective in identifying relatives with pathogenic variants. However, there still is significant opportunity, opportunity for improvement in participation. The next article is titled, Oral Geranial-Geranial Acetone Treatment Increases Heat Shock Protein Expression in Human Atrial Tissue, written by Ben Marion et al. Geranial-Geranial Acetone, or GGA, is a compound that upregulates heat shock proteins, which are important chaperones that regulate the maintenance of healthy protein quality control in a cell. The authors treated the patients with either placebo or GTA for three days, then harvested right and left atrial appendage during coronary bypass surgery. The results show that three days of GTA treatment is associated with higher heat shock protein expression levels in the atrial appendages. These findings paved the way for future studies using GTA to increase heat shock protein levels and treat cardiac diseases such as post-operative atrial fibrillation. Dale Maida et al. authored the next article titled Human Subpulmonary Infundibulin has an Endocardial Network of Specialized Conduction Cardiomyocytes. The right ventricular outflow tract is the most common source of ventricular arrhythmias in non-structural heart disease. The authors performed serial histological sections of microcomputed uh, tomography of adult human hearts. They were able to track specialized conduction cardiomyocytes from the ba base of the anterior papillary muscle to the su uh, supraventricular crest and subpulmonary infundibulum. Transitional cells were also found at these sites. These specialized cardiomyocytes could be the source of arrhythmias that originate from the endocardium of the RV outflow tract. Next up is an article titled Enhanced Arrhythmogenic Potential Induced by Renal Autonomic Nerve Stimulation, Role of Renal Artery Castor Ablation by Chinusi et al. The authors used a decapolar electrocaster to perform electrical nerve stimulation of the proximal segments of the canine renal artery before and after RF ablation at the vein ostia. Before ablation, nerve stimulation increased blood pressure, heart rate, and often induced ventricular arrhythmias. These effects were attenuated by ablation. These findings suggest that renal autonomic nerves are one of the therapeutic targets for suppression of frequent ventricular arrhythmias. The next article is a contemporary review titled the electrocardiogram in the diagnosis and management of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It is written by Fino Charo et al. The authors discuss the current role of ECG in the diagnosis and management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, focusing on various clinical settings in which appropriate use and interpretation of the ECG can make a difference. Next up is a hands-on article prepared by Gabriels et al. titled, When Bigger is Better, Novel Use of a 27 French Leaders Pacemaker Delivery Sheath for Femoral Lead Extractions. 
The authors describe their experience with a novel technique involving use of the 27 French uh, micro delivery sheaths as a femoral workstation for lead extraction. This issue also includes three Horizon Society documents. The first one is the 2019 HRS, EHRA, APHRS, LAHRS expert consensus statement on castor ablation ventricular arrhythmias authored by Cronin et al. This is the featured article for this issue. A comprehensive interview with the lead author conducted by online editor Dr. Daniel Mooring can be found at the www.hardrhythmjournal.com website. A second document is written by Martinez et al. titled Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Castor Ablation of Ventricular Tachycardia in Ischemic Heart Disease. This is followed by a third document titled 2019 HRS, EHRA, APHRS, LAHRS Focused Update to 2015 expert consensus statement on optimal implantable cardioverter defibrillator programming and testing by style at all. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Hot Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Peng Zhen Chen.